Martin, do you want to come up? Um, can we just welcome Martin? Come on. So um, we're rattling through this freedom series, and uh, Martin's, um, I know, got some great stuff to share. And uh, uh, he's one of my oldest friends, and uh, so I always love hearing him speak. Um, I just would love us just to pray for him. Is that all right? Um, he's had a bit of back trouble this week. So um, should we just pray that as he preaches, his back will be healed? Would that be a good thing? He can give to us, and he can receive something else, yeah? Yeah, Holy Spirit, we, uh, we love the fact um, that this is a two-way street. Um, we can pour our lives out and you can pour it back in. And uh, so, Jesus, we just want to pray now for blessing and healing to flow through Martin. We pray for his back to align. We pray for um, uh, the muscles in his back to go back the way they should. Um, Lord Jesus, we, we love your nearness to us. We love your intimacy to us. We love the fact that you know us. You know Martin's back better than he does. <laughs> you can see it from every angle, better than any scan. And uh, you're in the, in the business of restoring things. So we pray that restoration take place as Martin speaks. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we pray for the rest of us that our hearts be open uh, to receiving what he has for us. Um, thank you, Jesus. Amen. Am I on? Is it working? Can everybody hear me okay? Um, good morning, everybody. Um, we're on a fascinating journey, aren't we? And uh, I know that God has got so much uh, that he's leading us into, so much stuff for us. And one of the reasons I know that is that my shadow doesn't heal the sick yet. So I know that there is more for us. And there's more um, intimacy with, with God. Um, I want to kind of talk about theology for just a moment. Theology is a scary word for a lot of people. Um, for a lot of people, it can induce a coma quite quickly. As soon as you say the word theology, not everybody's like Adrian who gets excited about <laughs> theology, but theology is basically the truth about God. That's what it is. The truth about God. And what we believe is absolutely vital. If we um, don't believe that God heals today, it means that we will miss out on so much of what God has got for us because we won't press into healing because we won't believe it's for today. So having good theology is, is absolutely vital. And so this morning, I'm not just interested in doing a little bit of theology or giving you a little bit of truth. What I want is for us to hear something fresh from God that will lead us into a fresh encounter with him. I'm not interested in you just being a bit more intelligent when you leave. I'm interested in us encountering Jesus this morning. So uh, we're going to do a bit of theology, so let's get excited about theology. Come on! (laughs) Okay, we're talking about um, the topic of adoption this morning. Um, The slide might have given it away. Um, Oh, that's better. Right, here we go. Um, I want to talk about adoption this morning. 
And uh, God's been speaking to me about this for about 12 to 18 months. And um, I know he's excited about this. Um, and so I want us to get excited about this in a fresh way. There's something he wants to speak to us this morning. So um, there are five passages in the New Testament that talk about adoption. Three of them are in Romans, one's in Ephesians and one's in Galatians. We're going to look at three of them. So the first one is in uh, Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 15. It says this, But you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, I've put up here that uh, the footnotes in the NIV state that sonship, where it says spirit of sonship, uh, can also be translated adoption. So there are some other translations up there where it talks about adoption to sonship, adoption as sons. And there's another footnote which we'll, become, uh, we'll keep coming back to, but basically says that the Greek word for adoption to sonship um, is a term referring to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. It has a legal significance. There is a legal meaning to this phrase that we will look at this morning. Um, the next passage I want to look at is Galatians chapter 4. It says this, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls our Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. Um, And there are various ways that that phrase is translated, where it says the full rights of sons. It talks about, in the 2011 NIV, it says that we might receive adoption to sonship. It's the same legal phrase being used again. Um, The ESV talks about adoption as sons. And then Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 5 it says, In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given in the one he loves. Again, it's the same phrase that is being used. It's a legal term. So, It's also translated adoption to sonship, adoption as sons. Now, words can be funny things, can't they? When I was 18, um, I went and did uh, a volunteer year with uh, British Youth for Christ, and I was sent to Lincoln, and we had a very large caravan where the inside got ripped out and we got some seats in, and we would go to various villages and we would do youth events with kids. We'd talk to them about Jesus. And during the course of the year, um, we got a band over from Canada called Titus, who would, would play music and we'd invite a lot of the kids we got to know 
um, along to the concerts and we talked to them about Jesus. And one evening we were sitting around and there were some, some of the street kids with us and there were some of these guys from the band and one of the street kids got talking. I can't remember how it came up but he just was talking about one of his habits and uh, one of the things he said, it said was, oh, yesterday I, I, had, I had five fags yesterday and one of the Canadians, his eyes pretty much fell out of his face because he has a different understanding to the word fags. So <clears throat> he interpreted what this guy said in a completely different way. And I had to have a quiet word with him and say, um, actually, the word fag over here means cigarette. It doesn't actually mean something else. Very, quite funny. There's quite a few words and phrases where the meaning has changed over the years. Sometimes the change has taken hundreds of years. Sometimes it's just a few short years. And often the change is so big that the word ends up meaning something completely different from the original meaning, which can lead to all sorts of confusion and misunderstanding, especially if two people in a conversation understand a word in completely different ways. Now, there are enough of these words and phrases around where the meaning has changed that there are some technical terms for this. I don't know how to pronounce the first one, so I'll just try. Um, etymology, is that right? And the other one is called semantic change. Etymology is defined by the dictionary as the study of the history of words, their origins, and how their former meaning had changed over time. Semantic change is the evolution of word usage, and specifically how the modern meaning of a word may be different to the original usage. So let me give you some examples. Several hundred years ago, if you called someone nice, you were saying that they were ignorant, foolish, or stupid. Whereas now it means that they're pleasant and agreeable. The word awful originally meant awe-inspiring. Now, if something is awful, it means it's, it's horrible or it's bad. Uh, to dribble <laughs> once meant to shoot an arrow short or wide of its target. The word girl used to be the term used for a young person of either sex. <laughs> to grin once meant to scowl or show your teeth as a sign of anger. The word meat used to mean all food, not just that which originates from an animal. Um, today, if you talk about a hard drive, people are likely to think of a computer. 30 years ago, people would have thought that you'd had a bad journey in your car. <laughs> or if you said you really hated your mouse and was going to smash it to pieces, 30 years ago, someone might have called the RSPCA. Now, this is my favourite, and that's that apparently the word groovy used to mean off-colour. So, why have you come to see me today, Mr Merrill? Well, Doctor, I'm feeling groovy. <laughs> so, what's all this got to do with my topic of adoption? It's anyway. Yeah, <laughs> we're getting there. <laughs> For years, I've heard people say that when we become Christians... 
God adopts us into his family. And if I'm honest, that has never sat easy with me, and I've never really been happy about it. I've always felt uncomfortable when I'm told that I became part of God's family by adoption as opposed to birth or rebirth when I was born again. I suppose the dilemma could be summed up as this. When I became a Christian, was I adopted into God's family or was I born into God's family? Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 appears to indicate that we're born into God's family when we're born again. There's a slide somewhere for that. I'll read it. John chapter 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Now for me, my thought process goes like this. If Spirit gives birth to Spirit, doesn't that mean that when we're born again by the Spirit of of God, at that moment we were born into his family rather than adopted? I think that the confusion over this is because of how we understand the word adoption today. And this is actually an example of semantic change. Because what we understand adoption to mean today is very different to what it meant 2,000 years ago. We think of adoption as a child coming into a family and becoming like a natural-born child in that family and being treated that way. Most of us know people who have either adopted a child or were adopted themselves. And so when we think of adoption, we usually do so with that particular understanding and mindset. But this concept of adoption only really goes back as far as the 19th century and was certainly not what the word meant when the New Testament was written. And so this is not the way that the readers of Romans, Galatians and Ephesians would have understood what Paul was talking about when he used the term adoption. Now, let me be clear about something. This doesn't mean that the conclusion people have come to when they've understood these passages in that way has been wrong or even invalid. The idea that we are added to God's family is not just implied by the passages that talk about adoption, it is referred to in numerous other ways throughout the New Testament. But this does mean that how we have understood these particular passages is not actually what Paul was trying to communicate. And actually, there is some other understanding and meaning to these passages. So let's have a look at what the term adoption would have meant to believers living in Rome, Galatia and Ephesus. Now, infant adoption in Roman times was very rare. Abandoned children were likely to be picked up for slavery and actually made up a significant percentage of the Roman Empire's slave supply. Foundlings were occasionally taken in by families and raised as a son or a daughter. The children were raised in an arrangement similar to guardianship 
and were considered the property of the father who abandoned them rather than a son or daughter who had been taken, who had taken them in. However, adoption was a term well known in Roman society and culture. For wealthy and powerful families, one child was adopted as an heir in order that all knew who would take over to make the transition easy and bloodless. Adoption acted as a mechanism for ensuring a smooth succession with the emperor frequently taking his chosen successor as his adopted son. In the Roman Empire, adoption was the most common way of coming to the throne without the use of force. The emperor Tiberius was the adopted son of Augustus, and his adoption began a general tradition that the emperor adopt his successor. And this tradition was common during the Roman Empire's first 200 years. Let's try and explain it in a slightly different way. If you've seen the movie Stardust, it's a kind of a fantasy movie. Um, But there's a king, and he has seven sons, and the king is dying. So what the sons do is they all try and plot ways to kill each other. Because the way you figure out who the next king is, is the last son standing. So they get pushed out of windows, they get drowned, they get poisoned, they get cut in half, until there's only one son left. Not a great way um, to run your family. And that was one of the things that adoption in Roman society was designed to avoid. A child being adopted as an heir meant that everyone understood who the resources would go to when the head of a powerful family or the ruler died. Everyone knew that by adopting someone as their heir, the ruler was saying, All my resources are allocated to my heir. All my resources are allocated to that person. This is how the term adoption would have been understood by Paul's readers. He was saying that as followers of Jesus, we are chosen to be recipients of all the Father's resources. As his children, being adopted as sons means that all his resources are provided to us. This also explains why each one of the adoption passages also talks of inheritance. Paul is showing that adoption and inheritance are linked. In each of the three letters, Paul was writing predominantly to Gentiles who would have been familiar with Roman concepts such as adoption. And interestingly, there is a similar or a parallel Jewish concept that was understood at the time. Often a son would be trained up in his father's business, and that's what happened with Jesus, is that he trained as a carpenter, and he would have been done so by Joseph. During the training, the son would learn how business was done and undertaken, what was a wise use of resources and what wasn't. The aim was that eventually the son would carry on the family business. Often, around the age of 30, the father would say something to those he did business with which indicated that his son 
was now authorised to undertake business on his behalf. It showed that the son's word was as good as the father's and could seal a deal and use the family's resources or spend the family's money. One of the ways he might do this is to introduce his son to others by saying something like, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That sound familiar? When God said uh, this about Jesus, he was doing so in a way that those who heard would be in no doubt about the meaning of what he was saying. They would have understood that God the Father was publicly stating his approval of his Son and that the Son was authorised to undertake the family business. And that's what he went on and did. Healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, preaching the good news, and announcing God's kingdom was at hand. The adoption passages also talk of inheritance and as us being heirs. More than that, Romans 8 states that we are co-heirs with Jesus. Being a co-heir means his inheritance is also ours. We share it with him. The resources at his disposal are at our disposal. Just as God was pleased with Jesus and authorised him to undertake the Father's business, so God is also pleased with us, and authorises us to undertake the Father's business, with his resources available to us, just as they were to Jesus. It is mind-blowing to be described as a co-heir with Jesus. Because Doesn't this mean that everything that Jesus could expect to be available to him as an heir, we can also expect to be available to us? In John chapter 14, Jesus says that whoever believes in him will do the works he has been doing and will do even greater works because he is going to the Father. If we believe this scripture to be true and believe that we are intended to do greater works than Jesus, as it says, then don't we need to be able to access the resources that Jesus did to fulfill this scripture? If we don't have the right to access the resources needed to do the works of Jesus, then how can we possibly do the works he did let alone greater works. This scripture is possible when we grasp that we are co-heirs with Jesus. And this means the resources available to Jesus are available to us and we are authorised to use those resources. I think this is what God intended normal Christian life to look like. And this is what he wants to draw us more and more 
towards. Can you sense God's invitation in this? Now I think that one of the implications of us being referred to as being adopted as sons and heirs is to stop us distancing ourselves from what Jesus did as just his mission and not ours. God is saying to us, we are as much a part of his plans to see his kingdom come as Jesus was. We are highly favoured children with all his resources at our disposal who are now authorised to act and use the family's resources to undertake the family's business. Adoption is not a description of how you became a member of God's family. It speaks of your legal standing within the family and our inheritance. It shouts out several things. It says you are to represent Jesus to the world or to represent Jesus to the world. When people encounter us, it's meant to be that they're encountering Jesus. It says you are highly favoured. You are highly favoured. You were born for significance. You are my precious son and my precious daughter. You are authorised to act for me. My resources are available to you as you partner with me. Being adopted as sons, being an heir, these are an invitation and commission to each of us to partner with God in his mission to see his kingdom come. To see the deaf hear, the lame walk, the blind see, the dead raised, the demons flee, the captives released, with the resources of heaven behind us and at our disposal, with the authority to carry out the family's business on behalf of our Father. This is the mission Jesus declared when he quoted from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Pete referred to this when we started the Freedom series some months ago. Jesus' mission is our mission. And as those adopted as sons, his heirs, co-heirs with Jesus, we can walk in the authority of God with his resources at our disposal to carry on the mission until the prayer that Jesus taught us is fulfilled, that God's kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven.
knowing that we are authorised by our Father to be involved in the family business, with authority to undertake transactions on behalf of our Father, should affect the way that we pray. God wants you to pray with the conviction and authority of one who knows that he partners with him, is authorised by him, with his resources at your disposal, to see his kingdom advance. So how should this affect how we pray? Hebrews says that we can approach the throne with confidence. Why? Because we're sons and co-heirs and we are highly favoured children. We are welcome at the throne. James says that the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. Why? Because we are his precious children and we are co-heirs with Jesus involved in the family business. And our prayers carry weight and authority. In Mark it says that we should ask without doubting and whatever we ask we will get. Why? Because heaven's resources are at our disposal as we undertake the family business. I don't think that the devil minds too much if you pray or if you don't. I think that if you do pray, then he wants you to do so from a place of fear or unbelief or lack of conviction. He wants you to pray as someone not convinced of your place in God's family. He wants you to view yourself as insignificant. The devil wants you to pray with an orphan mindset and will do all he can to try and convince you that you are not a full child of the king and that God does not hear your prayers. And if he does, that he's indifferent to them or they have little or no effect. Does that ring true for anyone? The devil wants you to believe that lie so that you do not pray from a place of faith or grasp the place of favour and authority that God has for you and for you to live from that place. We are meant to be powerful for God's kingdom. Your adoption as a son, you being a co-heir with Christ, speaks significance over you and your life. It is an invitation to partner with God. Which do you choose to believe? Do you see yourself as part of God's family but insignificant? Maybe the runt of the litter, no better than an orphan, with no significant role to play. Maybe you're part of the family, but you see yourself pushed to the side somewhere. You can embrace that lie if you like, and it will rob you of the inheritance God has for you. Or will you choose to believe what God says about you? that you are adopted as a son, that you are a co-heir with Jesus, with all that means. 
Will you choose to believe what God says about you and live from that place, knowing that you are a treasured, valued child, authorised to undertake the family business in partnership with God? If you do, then I'm convinced that as we respond to him, God's going to meet us in a new way. And that there's a fresh touch and a fresh anointing from him. Can we all stand, please? What I'd like you to do is just close your eyes and just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. There is an invitation that God is um, giving us this morning to enter into more of what he's got for us. And part of that for some may be that you have to confess and repent of a lie that says, I'm insignificant. I may be part of the family but other people are more important than me. When you confess a lie, what you do is you give it to Jesus and he has something better for you in its place. And what he has for you is a conviction that says you are my son in whom I am well pleased. You are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. You are significant. You are authorised to represent Jesus. You are important in the family business. You are a freedom bringer. You are a presence bringer. You are one who brings light into darkness. And as you partner with me, the kingdom will advance. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We thank you that you've been working this morning. From the moment we walked through the door, you've been here touching us. So I pray you bring truth and revelation to people right now. Where people have been believing a lie, I pray you'd shine your light on that and reveal it. And in its place, you'd speak truth and bring conviction. 
if you feel you'd like someone to actually pray with, then please do come up to the front. And if you're part of the ministry team, then please do pray with anybody who comes forward. You don't have to. If you're doing business with God, then that's great. But if you feel you'd really value being able to pray some stuff through with people, then please come to the front. And what I'd like to do is just put your hands on the person next to you. And uh, we're just going to pray. Thank you, God, that we are treasured children of yours. That our adoption speaks of us being in a place of significance in your family that we are your heirs, we are co-heirs with Jesus, that your resources are available to us to see your kingdom advance, to see the name of Jesus lifted up, to see the lost one, to see healing and wholeness and deliverance and freedom. And so, Lord, as we have our hands on one another, I pray, Holy Spirit, come and bring fresh anointing in the name of Jesus. Fresh anointing in the name of Jesus. That we would enter into more of what you have for us. And that you would bring a conviction of who we are in you.